Please rise as you're able for the reading of the word. Today's reading comes from the book of Revelations, chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Hear these words. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, these are the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know where you're living, where Satan's throne is. Yet you're holding fast to my name, and you did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teachings, teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put stumbling block before the people of Israel so that they would eat food sacrificed to idols and practice fornication. So you also have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent then. If not, I will come to you soon and make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give a white stone, and on this white stone is written a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of God for the people of God. Well, it's so good to be with you all in worship on this beautiful day uh, just ahead of Jalen. Is it Jalen that's coming on Monday or Tuesday, this winter storm uh, that's on the way? And Mike, thank you for reading our lesson. I'm always a little miffed with God when I hear Mike read because of that voice that God gave him and the one he gave me. Always a little miffed with him about that. Well, if you've been here since the first part of January, you know that you've, you've caught us right in the middle of this series on Revelation called Defying Gravity, and we're camping out in just two chapters during this time, Revelation 2 and 3, in order to get a closer look at seven churches, the seven churches of Asia Minor, which today would be Western Turkey, to whom John is writing. John, perhaps the apostle, certainly John the prophet. And the story is that these seven churches are struggling. They're struggling to endure faithfully in an antagonistic culture, in a very hostile place. But what you notice here in this particular letter is that sometimes, not always, but sometimes the biggest hurdles that the church faces don't come from the outside. They come from the inside. Chapters 2 and 3 contain what we said last week, letters within the letter, each tailored to the specific concerns of each of the congregations. And John begins here, as he typically does, with a word of commendation followed by a word of critique. Spiritual leaders understand the need, as we said last week, 
Sometimes we need a pat on the back, and sometimes we need a kick in the pants. And so we understand, pastoral spiritual leaders understand the need to be both pastoral and prophetic in our teaching and preaching. Now, Sherry and I have had the privilege now in our 37th year of ministry to serve six different churches in 36 years, and I must say we have loved them all, some a little more than others, but I can tell you that in some ways these six churches are very similar, and in some ways they are as different as night and day. We've had the privilege of serving churches in rural communities in the country. We have served churches in the city. We have, ch we have served churches in transition. We have served churches that were poorer and churches that were more affluent. And they're very much alike, but they're very different. And they all, individually, they all have certain gifts and graces, and every one of them have their issues. I remember in Cartersville, you all were in Bartow County, Bill, the other day. You passed by that church that we were privileged to serve four years in Cartersville. And I remember the discussion there when I came was that the Budweiser plant had just come, and one of our lay leaders owned the land at ground zero, and he did pretty well with his acreage. And the discussion on the finance committee was, will we accept his gifts to the church? And my response was, of course, the devil has had that money long enough. We'll take it now. And I remember the day that the brewmaster from Budweiser joined the church, wonderful family, and made church picnics a little more fun as well. <laughs> they're all different, and yet they're all the same. This morning, I'd like to invite you to join me for a moment to come over to the church at Pergamum, also called Pergamos. It's about 70 miles, for those of you who appreciate geography, about 70 miles north, just northwest, really, of Smyrna, we talked about last week, that's up the road of peace also from Ephesus, which we've addressed as well. Pergamum was known for its library which historians say actually rivaled the library at Alexandria. In fact, historians say that this library at Pergamum had no less than 200,000 volumes within it. Now, parchment in those days was like gold. In fact, it still is to many of us. And some of you are like me. My idea of heaven is a pot of coffee and a library. It was Einstein who said, the only thing you absolutely need to know is the location of the library. And I find it somewhat ironic, don't you, that the word parchment actually stems from the word Pergamum. The other thing that made Pergamum famous was its numerous temples and altars. It was a center of worship for four of the most important pagan cults in the first century. Zeus, there was an altar to Zeus, Athena, Dionysius, and Asclepios. I love that name, Asclepios, who was the Pergamene god of healing, who attracted people from the world over. Asclepios was designated by the Greco-Roman culture as savior. In fact, some of you know, if you're in the field of medicine, that the symbol for Asclepios, the god of healing, was the serpent. Indeed, you can still see it in the Caduceus insignia 
that you often see at the doctor's office or at the hospital. You see the serpents there and the wings. But for disciples, the serpent was the personification of evil, which may be the reason that John refers to Pergamum as the place where Satan is enthroned. I think it's more likely because of a throne-like altar that was dedicated to Zeus that overlooked the city from the hill. And by the way, that altar can still be seen today at the Pergamon Museum in Berlin. It is a wonder. In addition to all that, Pergamum was the official cult center of emperor worship. In fact, in about 27 in the Common Era, there was a shrine that was dedicated to Caesar Augustus and later one to Domitian. And so what we're saying is, is, as we enter into Pergamum, it's a very religious city. But it's a city that became hostile towards this tiny cult called the Way, Christians. What's interesting to me is that the Roman Empire was very tolerant of polytheism, that is the belief in many gods, but they became very intolerant of monotheism, that is, belief in one God. It's still the case, by the way, sometimes even in the 21st century, that the world is more tolerant with people who believe everything or nothing, polytheism, atheism, but I tell you, if you believe something specific, you got trouble right here in Music City. And so these disciples are struggling. So John begins with commendation, speaking for the risen Christ. Listen to what he says. I know where you live. Now, sometimes that sounds a little scary, doesn't it? I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, and I know that you're holding fast to the name. What name? To the name of Jesus. You're holding fast to my name and that you have not denied your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who, by the way, who, he was the first Christian martyr in Pergamum, who historians say was actually burned alive in a brazen bull, roasted to death because he held on to the name and would not bow his knee to Caesar. They held to the name. That verse reminds me how often we are tempted to be anonymous in our witness how often we hide the name of Jesus. In fact, I noticed even in seminary when I was at Emory University from which I benefited so much that sometimes I felt like even the students were a little shy of using the name of Jesus. I don't know if you've noticed it in our culture, but sometimes we use his name more as a swear word than a prayer word. And I think of Luke 9, 26, where Jesus said, whoever is ashamed of me and of my name and my word, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory. There's power in the name. And so John applauds the congregation, well done, that they have held on to the name. But then comes the critique. In essence, what John says here is, but y'all got some issues. John probably spoke Southern grammar, 
y'all have some problems. I've got a bone to pick with you. And John speaking for the risen Christ says these words, tough words, listen to this. You have some in your congregation who hold to the teaching of Balaam, remember that name, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the people of Israel so that they would eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice fornication. So you also have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, repent, or I'll come and make war against you with the sword of my mouth. It's kind of like Jesus is saying, don't make me come down there. Have you ever heard that from your parents? Don't answer. Probably have. Don't let me come down there and deal with you. What is it? It's a word of accountability. It's a word of warning. It's a word of caution. Somebody's going to get it. But I wonder when you read that text, and I saw the curiosity on your face when Mike read it, what on earth are we talking about in this text? Well, quite simply, what we're talking about is false teaching. Let me explain. Does the name Balaam ring a bell with anybody? It does if you've read Numbers. Do you remember the story of Balaam and the donkey, how Balaam didn't get it, and even the donkey saw the angel and began to be the voice of God for Balaam, who was kicking at the donkey? It always reminds me when I get insecure about preaching that if God can use Balaam's ass, maybe he can use me too. (laughs) Maybe you. Balaam was a non-Israelite prophet, non-Jewish, who was hired for money by Israel's enemy, the Moabites. The king of the Moabites was named Balak, and he was hired for good money to curse Israel. But he couldn't do it because no one can curse those whom God has blessed. And so, Balaam set a little trap. This is a fascinating story. Listen. He used a group of Moabite prostitutes from the pagan temple to lure these Hebrew guys into a tempting, compromising situation, and they fell for it hook, line, and sinker. They began to worship these pagan gods. They began the feasting on the meat that was offered to idols and the prostitution. They were involved in all of that, and they fell for it. And they became so blended with the Moabite culture that you couldn't distinguish an Israelite from a Moabite. Balaam then becomes the prototype for false teaching. And it's the same with the Nicolaitans. There was a small group in the church at Pergamum who became so conformed to the Pergamene culture They were worshiping Jesus on Sunday, but they were participating in the pagan shrines during the week, and they became so conformed to the Pergamene culture that their faith was no longer distinguishable. They still had the name, but they lost their flavor. Does that sound familiar (laughs) to anybody? I think you can make a case in this text, by the way, for the fact that Pergamum had the exact opposite issue of Ephesus. Let me explain. In Ephesus, they had the orthodoxy, they had good doctrine, but they didn't have the orthopraxy. They had good theology, but they became unloving. 
It's the opposite in Pergamum. They had some love, but frankly, their theology was a little flimsy. And they were starting to mirror more the culture than they were the kingdom. I want to say to you, if you've ever struggled with that, and you have, as have I, this is the danger of missionary work. This is the tension. We're called to live in the world without being of the world. Be holy, says God, as I am holy. The word is hagios. It means different. It means peculiar. And I know some of you don't need help with that. You were already that. We're already that. But in a spiritual sense, it means to be willing to be different. Now, this does not mean that we're called to be like the Essenes. You remember the Essenes? The Essenes were a Jewish sect that totally removed themselves from the world. They withdrew from the culture. That's not our call. If you go out by the staircase, it says, go into all the, what, world. That's our context. Wesley said the world is our parish. You cannot influence the world by detaching yourself from it. Isn't it true that salt is worthless if it never penetrates the flesh? Light is useless if it never shines in the darkness. And so Christ doesn't call us to be anti-cultural, but counter-cultural. Not anti-cultural. God doesn't hate the world. He loves the world so much so that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have life. You cannot transform the world by escaping it. But neither can you change the world by becoming just like it. When I was a boy, we used to operate sometimes by the old premise, when in Rome, (laughs) do as the Romans. And that was the problem in Asia Minor with the church at Pergamum. Have you ever discovered how hard it is to be culturally relevant and spiritually different at the same time? I think maybe that's why Jesus said in your witness, you have to be as wise as a serpent, Asclepios, and as gentle as a dove. That's why the book of Hebrews says we're really called to be resident aliens. We live here, but we're not really from here, and we're not destined only here. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said something I'll never forget. I think it's very applicable to our day today, particularly to our political culture. He said, history is like a drunk man on a horse. No sooner does he fall off on the left side that he mounts again and falls off on the right side. That reminds me a little bit of Washington, D.C. Did you know that there were actually two competing camps that threatened the heart of the church in the first century? Legalism and libertinism. Or we might say legalism and liberalism. The gospel, just like Jesus, is often crucified between two thieves, legalism and libertinism. Let me explain. Legalism is an attempt to add something to the work of Christ. 
like grace plus works equals salvation, and that's false. Or like grace plus morality or grace plus circumcision equals salvation, that's heresy. Philip Yancey once nailed the legalist very well when he said, and I quote, Christians get very angry towards other Christians who sin differently than they do. Libertines, on the other hand, do the opposite. They say, no sweat. Pull out the grace card. I'm free. Get out of jail free. Don't judge me card. For the libertine, grace can become a license to live in the flesh. So here's the problem. Legalists rob Jesus of the glory of his work for us. That's justification. And libertines rob Jesus of the glory of his work within us. That's sanctification. Let me put it in layman's terms. Legalists want Jesus to be Lord, but not Savior. Libertines want Jesus to be Savior, but not Lord. Turns out, he's both. Savior and Lord. The problem in Pergamum, and sometimes in 21st century, was that some were using their newfound freedom in Christ as a license for self-indulgence instead of self-sacrifice, and John calls them out. Stumbling blocks. Don't make me come down there. Peter calls them out too. There's a passage of Scripture in 2 Peter 2, verses 15 and following. I never remember reading this. I read it this week out of Eugene Peterson's uh, paraphrase of the New Testament, the message. He's calling out the false prophets. He's calling out the stumbling blocks. Listen to this graphic word. They have left the main road and are directionless, having taken the way of Balaam, the prophet who turned profiteer, a connoisseur of evil. There's nothing to these people. They're dried up fountains, storm-scattered clouds. They're headed for a black hole. They're loud mouths full of hot air, but still they're dangerous. They promise these newcomers freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For if they're addicted to corruption, and they are, they're enslaved. If they've escaped from the slum of sin by experiencing our Master and Savior Christ and then slide back into the same old life again, they are worse than if they had never left. Better not to have started out on the narrow road to God than to start out and turn back. They prove, listen to this, they prove the point of the proverb, a dog goes back to its own vomit and a scrubbed-up pig heads for the mud. Two thieves taking away from the gospel. And the answer from John is repent. It isn't change that side to this side. It's repent. (laughs) Turn around. For if not, I will come back, says Jesus, and make war with the sword of my mouth. That is the word 
The Word of God is not a sword. It is not a hacksaw as much as it is a scalpel. To rightfully divide, interpret the Word for the church is absolutely necessary and requires nothing less than the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. The last word here is a word of hope. It ends with a word of hope. To everyone who endures, to everyone who holds out to the name, I'm going to give you three things, the hidden manna, a white stone, and a new name. What on earth does that mean? The hidden manna, some of the manna from the wilderness wandering was placed in the Ark of the Covenant so that the people would always remember that God provides in our wandering. And when the exile occurred in 6th century, when the Israelites were removed from their home and taken to Babylon, Jeremiah took the Ark and buried it. And it was believed that when the Messiah came, the Ark would be reopened and the bread of heaven would be served. The hidden manna is fulfilled in the living Christ. What about the white stone? In the first century, when a jury was about to give a verdict on one charged with a crime, if one of the jurors blackballed or put in a black rock into the box, he was guilty. But if they put in a white stone, it was acquittal. It means you're innocent, you're freed. And then a new name, what's that about? It's a sign of adoption. You've been adopted into the family. You have a new name, an eternal family. Hidden manna, white stone, new name. This is about a future promise. This is about eternity. This means that history has a purpose. It's going somewhere. And it's not without immediate benefit even right now. Abundant life does not begin at death. It begins at faith. When you take on the name as Savior and Lord, abundant life begins. Let me give you one example, and I'm finished. At a service yesterday, and many of you were here, there must have been 600 people who came for the homegoing of Ed McDougall, one of the finest men I've ever been privileged to know. We were a part of a Wednesday morning Bible study. Some of you are part of that, and he was regular there. Wednesdays were his church day. He started at 7.30 in the morning, and then at night, choir practice, devout man. He was a structural engineer. He was from Chattanooga and then raised in Knoxville, and as I said yesterday, explains the fact that his blood was not really red, it was orange. I was the only one here that did not wear an orange tie. There are some convictions I just cannot do. <laughs> he did the work on Music City Center, structural engineer. He did the work in this building. We're sitting on the work of his hands. Ed McDougall built bridges all over. 
His specialty was concrete. It had been his father's specialty. His dad died when he was nine years old. Ed knew more about concrete than any other human being I've ever known. I've known some people in the church who had minds like concrete, that is, all mixed up and permanently set. He knew about precast and pre-stressed concrete. I don't even know the meaning of the word, but he knew it. And in that Bible study, these last weeks and months, we, we've been watching him. And I told his family, even with his diagnosis, it was like his faith just kind of went through the roof. It did. It, we all saw it. The crowd that showed up for his service yesterday validated his witness. And it occurred to me that this bridge builder was not a stumbling block. He was a stepping stone. That's who you are. That's not who you ought to be. That's who you are. You are the light. You are the salt, Jesus said. You are the stepping stone that builds bridges to connect others to the name and to the community that bears the name so that we can defy gravity. The gravity of sin and death so that we can defy that and live a life on a rock. That's our purpose. And so I say to you today, hold fast to the name that is above every name, the name at which one day every knee is going to bow, every tongue confess, Jesus is Lord, so that we can sing, take the name of Jesus with you, child of sorrow and of woe, it will joy and comfort give you. Take it then where'er you go, precious name. Oh, how sweet, hope of earth and joy of heaven. You're a stepping stone for Christ's sake, for the world. In Jesus' name, amen.